Um, this was um, something I preached a couple of weeks ago. Um, Cody asked if I'd preach, so we were preaching through all of Psalm 18, and this is just a snippet. Um, uh, I'll try and give a little bit of context, and we'll just see how we go. If I start talking too fast, are you having trouble deciphering my accent? Just let me know, and I'll dial it back a little bit. Um, so uh, today's passage is from the last part of King David's life. Um, as part of the rest of Psalm 18, it's mirrored like almost exactly with 2 Samuel 22. Uh, if you read them side by side, they're almost identical. Um, and I think as we read it together, um, um, it seems kind of quite preposterous, um, mistaken even, what uh, David declares when he's talking about his righteousness and his blamelessness before God. It's a fascinating portion of scripture. I'll just read it once more. Uh, verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Uh, for you save a humble people, but haughty eyes you bring down. Let me pray before we um, unpack this. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we love your word. It's perfect. It's true. It's divinely inspired by you. And it's gifted to us so that we might know you and live a life that pleases you. Lord, would you enable each of us not only to understand what we hear today, but by the power of your indwelling spirit, help us to desire to do what pleases you. Help us to personally experience the intimacy with you that David knew and to be able to speak such words to you without hypocrisy and with humility. We can't please you without your help. And so, Lord, would you help us day by day to depart from wickedness and guilt? Would you empower us to obey your law, to experience righteousness and blamelessness? Lord, would you make us merciful, pure, and humble? We plead all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen King. So, for most of um, today's passage, we're going to zoom in very closely on the internal life of David, his heart, his mind, and his relationship with God. But I want to start with just a wider contextual lens, and then we'll narrow our view to more closely examine David's spiritual state. So, Israel at the time that this was written and the period for 2 Samuel 22, uh, had just been through a massive transition. They had gone from being ruled by priests such as Eli, and despite God's warnings to them, God allowed Israel to have their desire to be ruled instead by uh, the less good option, which was judges like Samuel. And finally, God warned them again, but granted them their desire to be ruled by the worst option, that was a king. And despite many good qualities, King Saul embodied the very warnings that God gave about how kings would rule selfishly over the people. We know how the story goes that David ultimately chose David over Saul. And we recall David has this great zeal for God and a desire to build a temple to God. And in this way, David becomes central in the story of God's salvation. So we remember that uh, the center of worship in Zion, Jerusalem, uh, God covenanted with uh, David in 2 Samuel 7:16. He decreed, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so David represents this kind of quite clear turning point in the salvation history of God's people. And David ultimately becomes not only a foreshadowing of Christ, but also 
uh, like a familial forefather to the Messiah Jesus who rules on the throne of David forever. But even in the midst of David's uh, quite spectacular life with military victories and just um, some really beautiful stuff that we read about him, he's this really flawed guy. Uh, you'll recall the horrific story of David's murder of Uriah to double down on his adultery with Bathsheba. David thankfully responded rightly when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan and he penned the heart-wrenching words of Psalm 51, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. My sin is always before me and against you only have I sinned. In addition, just as another example, in fear of Saul, David sinned by lying repeatedly as a consequence of uh, unbelief in God's promises to him. So when David lied, he risked the life of his friend Jonathan, and his lies actually resulted in the murder of 85 priests and the priest families. So there's like significant imperfection at play. But yet despite his various sins and the cost of these sins, David's lineage continues eternally because the Lord was with him and granted him divine favor. So in light of all we know about David's flawed life, what he writes in Psalm 18 seems really bold, seems really boastful, and seems almost preposterous. What was David talking about when he was referring to his righteousness? At the end he says, For you save a humble people, but haughty eyes you bring down. I, I, I contrast it with Psalm 101.5, which says, Whoever has haughty eyes and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. So the question springs to mind, like, does David imperil himself by writing a psalm that at the surface seems to be really substantially characterized um, by pride? The, the, the start of Psalm 18, if you've got it with you in your Bibles, let's just know that David's writing this psalm as he responds to his rescue by God from Saul's murderous crusade. David was reflecting back on the repeated occasions when he had a chance to defend himself from Saul, by killing Saul. Saul was utterly enraged and consumed with jealousy towards David. Saul was chasing David with the full intention to murder him. So David spares him a first time in 1 Samuel 24, 19. And Saul's taken aback at the mercy that he receives at the hand of David. Saul says, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 26, 1 Samuel 26, verse 6, Saul at this stage is driven mad by the knowledge that David will become king, displacing him. And he's driven to this paranoid uh, kind of sense of just threatening uh, David, really intending to take him out. Uh, 1 Samuel 26, uh, 6 to 12. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeroyah, who will go down with me to the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping uh, within the encampment, his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord 
had fallen upon them. So in our passage from today, uh, verse 23, David proclaims, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord has given you into my hand today, that I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm oh, sorry, that was uh, verse 23 of um, 1 Samuel 26. Beg your pardon. Um, Saul's treatment at the hands of David is reminiscent of Job 22.30. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. I like how Matthew Henry describes the dynamic that's play here. Uh, Henry says, David had a fair opportunity to destroy Saul, and to his honor he did not make use of it. And his sparing Saul's life was a great instance of God's grace in him, as the preserving of his own life was of God's providence over him. Clearly David's not perfectly righteous, and when he's standing before the judgment of God, David does not have the ultimate judicial innocence which would enable him to plead that he had had no transgressions of the law and no offenses against God, because no one other than Christ has ever accomplished the absolute innocence of perfect righteousness. Yet by the strength uh, God provided through the Spirit, David was able to act righteously at many times through his life. So the power of David's restraint towards Saul was provided by God. God gave David what he needed to keep his hands clean from running Saul through with his spear. In verse 21, he says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. David's like a traveler who stays on the right path. He refuses to willfully, persistently forsake clear directions by going the wrong way. David knew intimacy with God because... um, of this enduring communion that he had with God. He wasn't double-minded in his devotion, and he did not allow sin to overtake him. Rather, David cut off temptation as soon as it became apparent, so as to not become ensnared by sin. So David experiences the favor and the strengthening of God in a similar way, I I think, to Abraham. God deliberately predestined Abraham to become the patriarch of a great family who blesses all the nations of the earth. In Genesis 18, we're given a behind-the-scenes look, if you'd like, of how God is operating in a way that might help us to understand the strange-sounding pronouncement of this passage. We read in Genesis 18:19, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep him, uh, after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Because God chooses David, David chooses the way of faithfulness. He keeps God's commandments central in his life and he loves them and he uses God's strength not to veer from him. So understanding this, what seems very much like David boasting is actually less about David and primarily a song of praise about God faithfully accomplishing all that he sets out to do. Verse 2 says, For all of his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. For the Christian were to cherish God's word, his laws, his commandments and his decrees. We must regularly meditate on them so that we can examine our hearts by them and live by them. David, more than any writer I can think of in Scripture, extolled the beauty of God's law. As he was refined himself by the word and the work of the Spirit, David was said to be a man after God's own heart. Scripture is essential in keeping us salty as salt be. And soaking in Scripture is crucial to the distinct saltiness uh, of all Christians. Have any of you tried... uh, an olive from an olive tree before it's been brined. Like it's just absolutely bitter and inedible, yeah? Without soaking extensively in God's word, the words of this psalm 
I'd say just wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be possible for David to have said them. So we too must consider an intimate knowledge and familiarity and devotion to Scripture as important to us as food or air. We can't please God if we don't know God. And we can't obey God and keep in step with the Spirit if we don't know His laws as laid out for us in Scripture. So we must read and meditate, remember, relish, and desire to live by God's precepts if we have any chance of, according, of, of living according to them and have our lives ordered and shaped by them. Without being connected to God, without being in an intimate prayerful relationship, we won't be able to understand or apply anything that we read. So prayerful dependence and biblical diligence are both such precious tasks for the faithful Christian. For David, we've read that God's rules were always before him and God's statutes David didn't put away himself. Um, brothers and sisters, I, I, I want to be doing this myself. I want to be encouraging my family to do this. I want you guys, I want to encourage you to be doing it too, uh, to be actively fighting planning, protecting the time that you need to uh, be spending time in uh, fellowship with God and in the Word. When you cherish, cherish such intimate familiarity with God's law, we recognize it's just a real privilege to be able to know these things that God has revealed about himself so that we can be connected to him and ultimately be found in him. Let's continue with our, with our psalm. So, um, after confessing the centrality of knowing and obeying God's word, David continues in verse 23, I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. So David's nearing the end of his life and he's able to reflect that God had produced in him a heartfelt devotion that enabled obedience. God himself later pronounces a favorable view of David when pronouncing judgment on Jeroboam in 1 Kings 14.8 just in case we think David was a little bit deluded and wrong. Um, here, David's son Solomon, was, uh, he was a distracted and, and he was uh, disobedient, disobedient by taking a number of foreign wives, an obscene number of foreign wives. And in light of his son Solomon's disobedience, God gave most of the kingdom to Jeroboam. And then God declared to Jeroboam that despite being given the kingdom, God says, you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. That's an amazing thing to have said about a person, like just remarkable. I, I want to make a simple um, observation uh, in contrast with Jesus. So we read of David being blameless in this particular regard and keeping himself from guilt. Uh, in contrast, because David foreshadows Christ in numerous ways, let's consider Christ. So Christ was perfectly obedient and blameless in every way, but in contrast to David, Jesus allowed himself to be stained with the guilt of the whole world's sin. David keeps himself from guilt. Jesus allows him to be stained by guilt that is not his. So even as we're inspired by David, let us not forget Christ's righteousness and his sacrificial standing in our place to take the full force of the blow of God's wrath against our own sin. The distinctions between David Christ in sin and guilt and self-sacrifice are the very precise things which accomplish and enable what no other human ever could, including David. But we see in David a pattern of personal obedience enabled by God, being rewarded by God, and indeed we see those who turn away from God being stripped of what they have by God. So Christ warns uh, those whose hearts are hardened um, of the wrath of God. For example, 
He warns the sexually immoral, for those who don't show care to the poor, who don't show mercy to debtors, and hypocritical teachers that they are in grave peril. Those at risk are often not even aware of their perilous state. You consider um, that familiar Bible story of the uh, farmer whose land produced a bunch of crops, and so he upsizes his barns and he plans uh, to enjoy what he has, to, to chill and enjoy his success. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? We simply must have hearts that are aligned to God, minds saturated in his word, and prayerful lives in lockstep with the Holy Spirit if we are to maintain our ongoing dependence on God and not on ourselves. At this point, the psalm turns to sound very much like Jesus' teachings on the Beatitudes, like, like Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 25 says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful, with the blameless man you show yourself blameless, with the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. God's mercy, which is known by the Hebrew word hesed, um, is closely linked with God's covenants with mankind. So the promise of mercy of hesed is specifically made in the covenants with Abraham and with David. Deuteronomy 7, 9 and 12 promise that for those who listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord will keep the covenant and steadfast mercy that he swore to your fathers. This promise is made to all who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So the blameless man is the one with a sincere heart, who is upright and who lives with integrity. So in these verses we see a principle that our lives and character are known to God and responded to by God with perfect justice in either judgment or reward. The words of the prophet Isaiah in uh, chapter 6 are retold by John uh, in John 12:40. It's a really clear illustration of this idea. When Jesus was faced with unbelief, he said of God, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. There's a Jewish um, uh, oral tradition. Uh, there was a saying um, that the manna from heaven tasted according to each man's mouth. So this is to suggest that the physical men are pleasant to those with thankful hearts and somehow vile to those who are chiding against God. So God often shows himself to each individual according to what that person's heart is towards God. Hard hearts experience God uh, differently to receptive hearts, which leads to the biblical warning of uh, Psalm 95.8 and Hebrews 3.7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be an end of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how we, spot, how we respond to God's voice is crucial. The state of our hearts, our receptiveness to correction are so important as to indicate whether we will fall away or enter God's rest. By God's grace, he changes stubborn hearts like ours so that we seek him and find him and remain in him. Scripture speaks of uh, putting off and putting on, 
putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So we've so far focused on putting on the new man. This putting on includes proactive seeking of God through prayer, meditation on his word, and heartfelt obedience to the laws that God has set out for us. And putting on the new man is absolutely essential in the formation of a righteous man uh, that David writes about. But like David, righteousness requires that we must put off the old man. And as part of that, it's profoundly important that we zoom in on the temptations that we face and properly understand sin. Because if we don't have a clear-eyed, sober understanding of sin, it easily ensnares us and is utterly deadly. So if we're to keep a sober perspective on sin, each of us must ask God to show us where we have struggled with sin, both presently and in the past, because in the past, sins are more likely than anything else to recur and cause strife than other sins. And I think we can also face unique temptations when we face changing circumstances. So if we experience success or mistreatment or suffering, praise of other people, even different life stages can come with different temptations. And many factors can cause us to sin in unexpected ways and necessity. We must stay alert to the prowling lion that is sin. Because we are in a mortal fight against sin, to fight off the temptation that comes from within, from the people and the culture around us, and from the enemy who deceives and accuses and destroys. In this fight, I mean, God has given uh, all of us, the church, as a really potent and effective weapon. And I want to encourage you to make... uh, just full use of God's provision through the church, uh, but by cultivating honest relationships with, uh, that have sincere confession and confrontation of sin, because our brothers and sisters in sin, as it's been said, can help to see past our blind spots. They can help us to confront sinful things that we've allowed ourselves to become accustomed to and fatally comfortable with. We, we need each other for this process. God's designed us not to be uh, able to do it on our own. I was reflecting as I was writing this with uh, Hamo in mind that in the short life of the church at Hamilton South, um, we've had just numerous occasions when one of us has sought to help um, a professing believer amongst us by lovingly and graciously warning them of sin that was evident. It was noticeably present and noticeably problematic in their lives. We've witnessed people become so angry at the revealing and the naming of sin, that they would prefer to cut off all ties um, and run away so that they can continue to indulge in those sins in private. It reminds me a lot of, you know, that character Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, his his, his precious, um, to prefer the dark, dank, lonely caves of self-deception to the beauty of receiving help and experiencing victory and the mastery of specific sins is a really tragic response. So given that all of us kind of have a bent that that's kind of a a realistic temptation for us, a realistic sort of thing that we could potentially choose, just encourage each of you, like, please don't give way to such a horrible temptation to to run and to hide and forsake the help of um, brothers and sisters. I want to give an illustration just of... um, an alternate response to serious sin in our lives. I imagine, if you will, um, someone comes to see me at my GP clinic. They're uncomfortable, something feels wrong, and so I take a history and I examine them and I formulate a conclusion that they have a serious condition causing the symptoms that they've come in about. So as an example, I might have reached a 
be in the middle of a heart attack just as we speak. Or their kidneys might be failing and they might be uh, very close to having multi-organ failure which could take their life within, within hours if the right treatment isn't received. Or maybe I need to break crushing news that the mild symptoms they've noticed are actually a sign that they have cancer. Are they glad to hear such terrible news? Absolutely not. And I take no delight in informing them that something serious is going on with such dev devastating diagnosis. To realize that we're facing death is sickening and horrendous, really awful to be told a terrible diagnosis, but it's crucial uh, for that person to understand the gravity of their situation because that enables us to decide on a plan to intervene and to fight for their life with the right treatment. And so the interaction, whilst it's really unpleasant and hard, is like really precious and really uh, crucial. It's stomach turning, but it may also be life-saving. All that to say, because we are all susceptible to temptation and sin, we are all in grave danger. We need to be able to properly appreciate what's wrong. And so my challenge for you guys is to invite and welcome people in your life to have hard conversations with you. Don't react in anger. Don't react by running away or by plugging your ears, as my daughter sometimes does when we're having difficult conversations. Um, be grateful, because even if a conversation is hard, it represents like this generous expression of God's love and his redemptive help being mediated through this person who brings a hard word to you. Because I think, honestly, like if a, if a warning is like just like super insensitive and rough and rude, it can still function as this beautifully effective, necessary, helpful alarm that you can respond to well. Um, when we know the specific ways that we are each individually uh, vulnerable to fall into sin, uh, we should ask God to produce in us this really divine revulsion, uh, a hateful intolerance for anything that has capacity to interfere with our uh, intimacy with God. By the Spirit's power, we need to subdue and master sin in our lives. And it's the mark of a genuine Christian that we have a rolling victory over sin, that sin doesn't have mastery over us, that we're not comfortable with it. Christ is an axe that exercises judgment when he cuts down rotten trees that bear bad fruit. And so we must pray and prove by our salvation-fueled striving that we are indeed his beloved and not subjects of his righteous judgment and wrath. So we aim to be people for whom the grace of God changes our desires. We no longer bend towards death and destruction, but we yearn towards righteousness and life. Because if our lives prove to bring glory to the Father, our good works will simply tell of the triumph of his divine grace within us. Uh, I've got uh, three quotes. They all happen to be from men that um, ministered in England four centuries ago. It's just a kind of quirky coincidence, but... Um, it, I, I find it funny, like, talking about 400-year-old quotes still being relevant to us today. I mean, it just uh, speaks of the timeless nature of us receiving counsel from Scripture and learning. So William Strong, he was a clergyman, as I said, in England in the early 1600s. He wrote, It is a strange boldness that the saints have in the presence of God by the virtue of the new covenant. All of their sins shall be laid open on that last day as a cancelled bond that they wonder how they shall look upon them and not blush. But the same spirit of sonship that gives them that perfect boldness then doth give them boldness in a great measure even now in this life, that they shall be able to say, neither height nor depth, 
nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. It's so beautiful. Thomas Watson, he was a, another Puritan in the mid-1600s, gave this helpful illustration. He was talking about a fowler, like a professional bird catcher, like maybe holding a massive bird of prey. And, 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 this, and this fowler is able to keep this enormous, extraordinary, powerful eagle grounded just by holding one foot or one whip. In the same way, with, a, with very little force, sin can utterly disable us if we allow it to get even a small hold on us. Therefore, Watson says, an upright Christian takes the sacrificing knife of mortification and runs it through his dearest sin. Cut into your sin with a scalpel. It's an amazing picture. An upright heart is not only angry with sin, but hates sin. And if he sees this serpent creeping into his bosom, the nearer it is, the more he hates it. Speaking of David's temptation to sin and his proneness to stumble, Henry Dove, in the last part of the 16th century, described the method that David used to keep upright. Constant and fervent prayer to implore the divine aid and the continual assistance of his Holy Spirit, that God would not only keep us from falling into them, but even turn our hearts from inclining to them. And he'd help us to see our folly and our danger. For alas, we are not able of ourselves to help ourselves, not so much as to think a good thought, much less to resist an evil inclination or a strong temptation, but our sufficiency is of God. So whilst judgment awaits all unrepentant sin, in contrast, those who repent and are purified by God can anticipate heavenly glory. Consider this verse from Matthew 13:43. It's, it's beautiful. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What a remarkable principle at play. Our righteousness is very important, but it doesn't save us. God saves us despite profound unrighteousness. He gives us a righteousness which is not our own, and he changes our desires uh, to begin to hunger and thirst according to his righteousness. This is God's work, which changes us from hostility and indifference to, presenting, to possessing a zeal for him that is given by him. The righteousness in our lives is not our own, but we walk in it and we live it out because of hearts and minds that are changed by God. So the boldness of David when he talks about his righteousness in today's passage is actually a testimony of changed affections in a life which is both salvaged by God and now can shine like the sun in his kingdom. God is faithful, as we know, to set out what he accomplishes to do. We're reminded of, the, of God's divine flow in Romans 8.30. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, image of his son, a conformity that we've seen in David's life through this passage. Romans continues, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, those who he justified, he also glorified. Uh, verse 27 from today's passage, for you save a humble people, but haughty eyes you bring down. In talking Humble people, this verse has in mind all those who are afflicted or poor or needy because the poor in spirit know their need for deliverance and salvation. In contrast, the haughty are the proud, self-sufficient people who scoff at God in their self-assurance. God's promise is to teach humility through judgment for all who deny their own dependency and reject their need for God. So we look to him and we receive grace and mercy. We refuse him and we receive wrath and desolation. 
So God's action is not a mark of retaliation, but of divine, necessary, and perfect justice. And there's this coming great reversal repeatedly promised by Christ, where those who seemed powerful and important in this life, the self-assured, the proud, and the like, will be humbled, and the humble will be exalted. Listen to Christ's teachings to the disciples on how much of this life's hardship and success will be turned on its head. This is from Luke 6, verses 20 to 28. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I can get my uh, phone out. (laughs) That wasn't it. There we go. I don't know if the power goes out when someone's not preaching right out here. Uh, where are we at? Why do you, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets? So noting this is true, we must entrust ourselves to God for our provision, to be generous with everything that we have, to live humbly, to be ready to suffer, to be mistreated and still be content, to leap for joy even in the midst of persecution. David, uh, in today's passage, his willingness not to retaliate against Saul, who was obsessed by murdering him, is a vivid portrayal of faith, which inspired obedience um, to what Jesus teaches next from that same passage in Luke. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And it's so counterintuitive, isn't it, in the flesh? When someone does us wrong, we're just ready to just go full vigilante, put on the cape and the mask and like let them have it, Um, or just even wish them uh, poorly. It's important to recognize that all mankind are beneficiaries of God's loving kindness through our own personhood, through the witnessed glory of natural creation, to the uh, precious gift of fellow believers in the church and access to reading and preaching of the word. We've all experienced God's grace and mercy. And so for us to be uh, thankless, self-sufficient and proud in response is this tremendous affront. The righteous are humbled by God's intervention in their lives and the guidance of his good and perfect law. So I like this very simple explanation by um, Augustine. He says, the grace whereby we are made alive is his, and the power is his, and yet by his grace we do it also. Let's close with this final reflection on this kind of strange passage. It's right and proper for us with humble hearts and changed lives to say, righteousness. Look at my clean hands. This is God's doing. I could not and would not have done this without divine intervention. This is the work of God in my life. He has seen my unrighteousness with perfect clarity. He has removed my guilt completely, shown undeserved mercy. He's sanctifying me day by day and preparing me for eternal weight of glory. He takes us, the rotten, the unworthy, the least likely of all people and prepares us to shine like the sun. For all of the righteousness and obedience and conformity to God's word, which is evident in our lives, 
All praise and glory belongs to him, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the God of salvation and redemption. All credit belongs to the Holy One of Israel. Let me pray. Uh, Father, Lord, we just thank you for, for your mercy and your grace that you've extended to us. Uh, we pray that uh, your word would take root in our heart. We pray that you would produce in us your righteousness by your mercy and your grace. Would you help us to remember your laws and to love your ways? Would you protect us from wickedly succumbing to evil temptation by the strength you provide? Would you grant us holy desires clean hands and pure hearts. Would you keep each of us, Lord, humble and merciful. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and to offer our lives as a sacrifice of praise. Lord, grant us that our lives would be lived through and through to your glory. We ask all of this for your name's sake and Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.